Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. John 1, 14 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a, a great joy to be with you today and a, a high privilege to get to open the scriptures, the word of God. and. Um, I'd, love, I'd love to say a prayer before we, we step in. Heavenly Father, uh, your goodness and grace and mercy and love is so clear as we see your word and as it reveals to us the person of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that today as we dive into a topic that is, is challenging in our current day and age, I pray that we, we will get to see your glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this series, we have been examining what it means that we are made in God's image. And this has been an offshoot of a series that we started. I shared this uh, at the very beginning of the series, uh, actually a year ago in the spring. We had a series that we unpacked what it means that we are made in God's image and kind of looked at, at, at establishing the edge pieces of that puzzle of a worldview that comes from Scripture. And now this series is an offshoot of that. We're examining one piece, one piece of that puzzle, one piece of what it means to be made in the image of God, and that is the, the, the piece that is our sexuality. This series is titled God-Centered Sexuality because uh, we're, we're, we're unpacking what it means to allow the word of God and the design of God to be the center and the heart of who we are as created beings in his image and sexual beings that are created in God's image. You know, this has become one of the great hot-button issues of our time. I, I, I don't even need to, to tell you that. This is, this is one of those topics that... Um, People get canceled for, for speaking about uh, and speaking against the, the grain of, of, our, of our culture and society. Um, but what we see as followers of Jesus and what we've been unpacking in this series is this beautiful reality that God-centered sexuality draws us into a greater dependence on Jesus. 
God-centered sexuality draws us into a greater dependence on Jesus. In that verse, the second passage that Brian read for us today, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, you can see it on the screen behind me, unpacks what it means to be drawn to Jesus in greater and greater dependence as we seek to live out a God-centered sexuality, especially that we can draw near to him with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing he has experienced temptation as as we have and that he will help us in our time of need when we draw near to him. Uh, This is is not just a, a piece of the puzzle of what it means for us to be made in God's image. This is actually something that that gets to the very heart of what it means for us as a church to be faithful to our mission to make disciples. Our mission here at the church is is, is that we would glorify God, that we would would make gospel-driven disciples, and we would do this by engaging people in this unexpected joy, this joy that our, our society and culture doesn't expect to find when we let our hearts and lives be centered on Jesus, the unexpected joy of a life that's more and more dependent on Jesus. So what we're talking about in this series is not simply how can we become a little bit more holy with our sexuality? We're talking about something that gets to the heart of who we're called to be as followers of Jesus, making disciples who depend on him more and more. This is important, and it's good. Hopefully today, as you came in, you received a handout. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that, that, that we are unpacking faithfully what God is doing. And so this, this handout has sort of a, a summary of some of the things. There's one on the front page. Uh, you can see kind of a week-by-week breakdown and then some of the resources that we've talked about in this series. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Those have also been uh, with links in our, our email news and updates that we've been sending out on Fridays. And then on the back side, you'll see here, this is... This is uh, it's, it's a summary of where we've been. And if you look at this, you can just reflect back for a minute at where we've been as we've been unpacking this idea that God-centered sexuality draws us into a greater dependence on Jesus. We started back in week one with rejecting two foundational lies. Lie number one, that love means agreement, that we have to be in agreement for us to love. And the truth is that love is most glorious when it's given in the midst of greatest conflict. We see this demonstrated in the gospel itself that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. He came and died for us. And then lie number two, your sexuality is your identity. This idea out there that the, the deepest, most important part about you, the thing about you that's most true is your sexuality. But we know from God's word that the thing that is most true about you and about me is not our sexuality. It is the fact that we are made in the very image of God. We bear the creator's image. And these foundational lies that our, our societies embrace as followers of Christ, we need to reject these so that we can understand, as we talked about in week two, God's design for marriage. Craig unpacked that back on November 19th, and there's the statement there that we've been talking about since then, God's design for marriage. A summary statement is on here that, that unpacks what marriage is and what it isn't and, and how anything that deviates from this, any sexual relationships outside of this are sin. They're outside of God's design for us. And And that helps to support God's great purpose for marriage. Dale talked about this week three. How God has given us marriage as a a parable, an illustration, a living parable to help us know the beauty and the glory and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. 
It's good. Through marriage, God is working to grow us in holiness. That's one of his great purposes. And then week four, last week, God's great purpose for singleness. We talked about what it means and what scripture has to say about those who are married and those who are not married. And I just want to look back at this. This is so important. If you missed last week, go back and listen. Pastor Zach unpacked this for us last week. And and there there is a quote that he had from author Sam Alberry. He said, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. What a beautiful picture of what that looks like. And Zach Zach exhorted us and casted this vision, this beautiful picture that the church should be the very best place in the world for both singles and marrieds to flourish, that we all have a need for intimacy that is not sexual, but is instead fulfilled as we glorify God together as his children. It's beautiful. Through singleness, God is working to grow his people in holiness. This is where we've been in this series, and today we turn to this question, looking at, well, how does, if all of this is true, all of this, we've unpacked God's design for marriage, his great purpose for marriage and for singleness, and looked at some of the lies that are out there that are, that are coloring how we talk about this and see this, we're today asking the question, well, how does Jesus respond to sexual sin? How does Jesus respond to sexual sin? And my guess is that today, this is not your primary question. You're probably sitting here wondering, how should I respond to this world that's full of sexual sin? Or my own life that's full of sexual sin? Or, or, or my family? You are likely here because you are, 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 are trying to figure out in this world, how should I respond to a specific situation? Maybe with your kids or another family member. Or maybe it's a close friend, a coworker. Maybe it's your neighbor. It could just be the general community, the, the, the water that we swim in, as Zach talked about last week. Or maybe you're looking at your own sexual sin and the struggle that you've had. How does Jesus respond to this? But really, you, you, you're here because you want to know, how, how do I respond to this? Whether the sexual sin that you're talking about in your life or your family or your friends, whether it's known or secret. Now today, I just want to be really clear. I plan to disappoint all of us this morning <laughs> because I, I won't try to answer your specific situation, your specific questions in this sermon. It just would simply be pastorally irresponsible. There are so many unique situations and we see so many different times and places and ways that Jesus responds to sin, all kinds of sin, but especially sexual sin in scripture. And so today, what we're, what we're not going to do is give you a specific answer, but what we can do is we can look to the scripture we can understand from scripture principles to apply to our own context that are faithful to the word of God and faithful to the way of Jesus. These principle level answers then that we unpack today, you can go and you can, you can take and, and with your prayer filled and careful wisdom and consideration, you can apply these to specific situations in your life. And we're here to help. 
If this brings up questions or, or, or you know, things, that discussions you wanna continue, again, like we have been doing, uh, we'll, we'll have some of the pastors and elders in the fireside room. Grab a cup of coffee, meet us in there at 11 o'clock. We would love to talk further. Or if maybe, maybe you know that this morning's not the right time, but you wanna meet some other time, reach out. We would love the opportunity to, to schedule a time to, to sit down and unpack a, a tricky situation with you. We would love to do that, to look at how we can apply these principles from Scripture. So I just want you to, to say that let's let today be the beginning of that conversation and not the end. Uh, I want to make a note, um, and this is, um, unfortunately in this world, I, I feel like I have to make this note that uh, today our message, we're not, as we, as we look at how Jesus responds to sexual sin, we're not going to be looking at specifically how, how Jesus responds to the sin of sexual violence. And so I want to make a note right now and say, if you are a victim of somebody else's awful decision and awful sin and a victim of sexual violence, I want you to know your God, your Savior, your Creator sees you, He knows you, He loves you. And I want you to know that He is, also, he is a God of justice. The Word tells us, that our, our sins will find us and that our God of justice will, will make sure that justice is carried out thoroughly and completely. And so I just want you to know that if, if I don't want you to feel forgotten today if that's you, that you have a God that will address that. And if you need help working through that, we're here for you too. So looking at this question, how does Jesus respond to sexual sin? You know, we, we, we look at our culture now, and Zach talked about this some last week, our culture is more sexualized and sexual sin has become more normalized today than perhaps at any other time in history. The broad culture has changed drastically since Jesus' time when, when these words we're going to look at were first written. Uh, the, the, what we see here is, is, is that the cultural waters that we swim in have become more and more sexualized. In fact, the idea that there is even such a thing as sexual sin is, is kind of offensive to most people. And maybe to you. I keep using this, this term, sexual sin. Maybe, maybe that's making you uncomfortable because the idea that there could be sexual sin, I mean, frankly, that's, that's, that's foreign to our current culture right now. Instead, our culture has set aside God's design and even the idea that there could be such a thing as sexual sin and instead is operating with a sexual ethic that is bound only by desire and consent. And if there's desire and if there's consent, two willing partners, then, then our culture says it must be okay. That is what drives our current culture. And technology enables sexual sin to continue to grow and thrive and even mutate in ways that quietly in isolation consume and destroy people's lives. Also, technology has provided opportunities now that we didn't see in Jesus' time, opportunities for, for a counterfeit sense of sexual intimacy to, to, to be satisfied uh, by people in secret. <laughs> this is what technology has done. This is the culture that we live in now. 
As I mentioned earlier, our culture no longer has a category for intimacy without sex, and so the, the tendency in loneliness is to turn to, to sexuality for answers and fulfillment, which leaves unfulfilled this deeper need for non-sexual intimacy with other people and with our Creator, this deep need that should be met in the church when we come together to glorify Jesus. Now, in Jesus' time, <laughs> The, 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 the culture was much less sexualized. It's, it's so, so different than it was now, but even then, people struggled to respond to sexual sin in ways that were godly, that glorified God. Instead, we see in Jesus' time, people responded to sexual sin with shame and ostracism and rejection. If people in Jesus' time struggled to have a godly response, how much more do we today in the mess that is our current culture struggle? We need help. But we have good news today. We have good news. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. It is beautiful what we see God doing. When we look at this question, how does Jesus respond to sexual sin? We find something amazing. You know, we... Uh, we're looking today at John chapter one. I said we're looking at a kind of a broad principle level truth that we can then uh, prayerfully and faithfully apply to specific situations. And, and, and our text today unpacks God's response not just to sexual sin, but to all sin, all rebellion, all, uh, all ways that we step outside of God's design for our lives. And John chapter one is, is sort of like this, this introduction and summary of Jesus' purpose and work on earth. And the book of John itself, it, it's, it's one of my favorite gospels. It's been called by some scholars the Romans of the, uh, of the four gospel accounts because it's, it's, it's systematic in how it is written. And so we see unpacked here in our passage, John 1, 14 to 18, this, this, this sort of uh, thesis statement about how Jesus comes, how God responds to our sin, especially our sexual sin. So we look at verse, John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at how beautiful this is. The glory of Jesus, his response to this world that was full of sin was this. It was incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Christmas. Zach said we're not in a Christmas series. Today, this is Christmas. We're talking incarnation today. That is how Jesus responds to our rebellion, even our ugliest, worst sins. He comes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this word incarnation that you hear at Christmas time, it's, it's sort of a, a fancy word, and it means simply a physical form or state, the concrete or actual form of an abstract concept or, 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 or subject. So Jesus who up until this point had existed within the, the community of the Trinity of God as simply the word of God, Jesus, that word becomes physical, a physical manifestation of God himself, flesh, in the flesh, God incarnate. And he didn't just come down and like hang out far away from us. No, he dwelt among us. The word took on a physical form, became flesh. 
Jesus' incarnation represents God's direct engagement with us in our broken world. How does Jesus respond to sexual sin? He engages us with incarnation, and it's beautiful, and it's the thing that we celebrate at Christmas, that God entered this mess we made of the world. But, but his incarnation, you know, maybe you're listening to this, and, and, and you think of, like, the, the two gods of the Bible. This is a false dichotomy, but it's, it's a popular idea that the God of the Old Testament is like this God of wrath and anger and the God of the New Testament is Jesus and this God of love. No, 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 no. That's not how God works. God is one, and we see that here in this passage, but Jesus, he didn't come as this angry representation of our our culture's idea of the Old Testament God. No, he came, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and his incarnation was marked by grace and truth. The glory of Jesus coming and being with us was that he was full of grace and truth, and this is not new. If you look back to Exodus chapter 34, you see God telling Moses who he is and what he's all about, and God declares that he is is a God of grace, and he has this bouquet of words unpacking what it means that he's gracious. He says he's merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God came to us in the form of Jesus, the same God of the Old Testament came to us, in Jesus incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, full of grace and truth. He had this, this grace that is slow to anger and abounding in love, and, and he, he comes, though, with truth. He sees our sin for what it is, and yet still loves us. It's amazing. But look, it gets better. You unpack this more and more. Verses 15 and 16, we see this. He talks about uh, here, John, this is John the baptizer, uh, who bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this is of he who, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And he's talking about how, how John and all the other prophets that came before him, they all affirm Jesus' identity as God's Messiah. This is God's plan. This was not an accident. This is not like, like, like just something that God stumbled into. He planned to send Jesus full of grace and truth into our world, and it's beautiful. And Jesus was faithful to God's plan. Verse, verse 16, Jesus was faithful to God's plan. This is how he desired to bring us his fullness of his character of grace and truth. Verse 17 here unpacks uh, the law. He says, uh, says this, he says, now the law, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law couldn't by itself show us this fullness of who God is and what he's about. The Old Testament law was designed to prepare the people for Jesus, to help them recognize their need for a Messiah so that when he came, In the flesh, the word made flesh, marked by grace and truth, they would see him and know him. And then verse 18, this is so beautiful. He wraps up by saying, hey, if you know Jesus, if you get to know him, you know God the Father. They are one. There is not an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of grace. This is the same God, grace and truth. So how does Jesus respond to sexual sin? This is how he responds. He faithfully, faithfully according to this plan of God since the beginning of time, Jesus faithfully engages our sinfulness with grace and truth. 
Jesus faithfully engages our sinfulness with grace and truth. And it's beautiful. This is the glory of God. Now, what does this actually look like? This is the principle. And we could be done here. I could send you out a little bit early today. We could be all done here and say this, th- this is it. Jesus responds to our sexual sin by faithfully engaging our, our sinfulness with grace and truth. Go and do the same thing. Go, go and do it too. And that would be good. But um, I, I want to take a minute today and at the risk of, of preaching a whole second series this morning, um, just, take a, just sample just a little bit what this looked like in the life and work and ministry of Jesus. So how does he do this? How does Jesus engage our sinfulness with grace and truth? There's, there's three things that you can see, and this is a great way to study the Gospels. If you're looking for a fresh way to, 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 to kind of enliven your, your reading as you come into a new year, try to answer this question as you read through the gospel accounts. How does Jesus engage our sinfulness with grace and truth? How does he enter into it with grace and truth? And so um, uh, if you do a survey of his life and ministry, you can see these three ways that Jesus does this I think are helpful for us today. The first one is Jesus' incarnation. It's, it's greater than the manger. It's greater than what we celebrate at Christmas time. You know, sometimes we have this tendency, and it's Christmas time now, and so we're thinking this direction. I can see the baby Jesus through that back door underneath the Christmas tree back there, and I love it. Um, we think of, of, of Jesus, the incarnation of Emmanuel, as the baby. And it's, it's a beautiful truth, but the incarnation, this, the topic, this doctrine of incarnation is so much bigger than the baby Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, our, our, our thinking is limited to Christmas time and the birth of Christ if, if, we, if we only think about the child. We miss much of the way that God's incarnation engages us and our world. But the reality is he entered not just the manger and not just this time of year with carols that are good to sing, to glorify God as we remember this this immaculate conception and miraculous birth, but his incarnation goes well beyond that. Our series verse from Hebrews 4, uh, it, it, it gets to this a little bit. If you look at Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 in particular, we see this, and, and it's incredible. Jesus didn't just enter the manger, no. He came all the way into our very experience. And this says that, that if we look at this, it says, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, he's come to earth. The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. He has come and entered our world, not just in the manger at Christmas, but he's entered the world of temptation that you and I face and the struggle with sin. He even was, 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 I'm sure, because of what Scripture says here, tempted sexually as we are. He faithfully engages us, and, and, and he knows what it's like to live in a world that is difficult to embrace God's design. He entered it in every sense. 
We even see here his, his incarnation, the way he entered the world. What did it look like as he engaged with, with people in their sinfulness? He engaged with them in grace and truth. Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus himself acknowledges that, that he entered this world and became even friends with people who were far from God, the tax collectors and the sinners. He was friends even with them. Now, our, our culture's tendency in general is to disengage from people who are different than us. Now, maybe more than ever, we see this all over, this polarization that disengages from people different than us. Jesus' incarnation, it's bigger than Christmas time. He engages with, with us when we are tempted to sin, and he even engages to the point of friendship with people who, who are f- very different than him. <laughs> to the point of being called a friend of those who are far from God. Now let's look at the next one. Jesus also takes the truth, even though he engages with us in our sinfulness, his incarnation goes all the way to the point of friendship with people who are sinners, he takes the truth of sin seriously. He takes it very seriously. Scripture tells us that the truth of sin is that all have sinned. There's nobody who's free of sin. We see this in Romans 3.23 and that this sin leads us to death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus takes this truth of sin seriously and we see that in his teaching. Look at uh, Matthew 5.27-28. You can flip over there. I'll have it on the screen here. Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus, he, he elevates a godly sexual ethic beyond even what the law said. He said, you have heard that it was said, and when Jesus says this in his teaching, he's referring to the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus elevates a godly sexual ethic above and beyond even what the law said and says, hey, you know, here's the bar for holiness. He takes the truth of sin seriously. And then if you continue reading here in verses 29 through 30, he, he goes on to teach that we should do everything in our power to get rid of the stuff in our life that maybe causes us to sin, to go down that path. And he's speaking with hyperbole here when he says to gouge your eye out and chop your hand off. But the point is Jesus takes the truth of sin seriously. Do you take it that seriously? Do you take the truth of sin serious enough to recognize that even if yours isn't as bad as that other guy's, that it will only bring you death? And are you willing to remove whatever causes you to sin? Are you willing to go and find the only flip phone that Verizon sells because you know having the internet in your back pocket causes you to sin? Are you willing to change your habits and behaviors and patterns and go to the gym at a different time because, because that, that, that person you've been talking to has become a little too friendly and you know that boy, I might make a mistake? Are you willing to remove the things from your life that cause you to sin? Do you take the truth of sin seriously like Jesus did? But now what's, what's amazing about Jesus, and we see this in this passage in John, is that he doesn't just take the truth of sin seriously. He also brings grace and truth together. He never lets go of those two things, and he brings them together as an invitation. 
Here's your homework. I want to encourage you to go and study. There's, there's three passages behind me up on the screen. John 4, 1 to 42. John 8, 1 to 11. And Luke 7, 36 to 49. Study these passages to look and see and understand how Jesus, when he engages, these are particular instances where he's engaging people who, who are walking in sexual sin. In John 4, it's a Samaritan woman at the well. She's been married five times and is living with someone who's not her husband. Jesus engages her sinfulness and he does it with grace and truth. And, and, and in that grace and truth, he doesn't let go of either the truth of what her sin is or the grace that is in God's heart and character that he came to deliver in his incarnation and he invites her into something greater. He brings grace and truth together as an invitation to something greater, something better, and he invites her into a, a, a life that is so much better than, than the sin that she's living. And in fact, this grace and truth that he brings to her, it brings a, 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 like, like a full-on revival to the whole town. That's the power of Jesus bringing grace and truth together with an invitation to something different, to something better. We see this in John 8, 1 to 11, the woman caught in adultery that, that you see Jesus bringing grace to her and setting aside her, her condemnation and lawful penalty for that adultery and inviting her into something better because of her sin. And then we see this in Luke chapter seven. This is the story of, of the Pharisee Simon who invites Jesus to his house. And Jesus brings both grace and truth to the Pharisee and to this, this woman that the scripture describes as a woman of the city who was a sinner. This is somebody who likely was a prostitute and comes to Jesus and, and she is in just full-on repentance and, and, and she washes Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with, with this perfume and, and it's this act of repentance and worship and in that moment, Jesus brings grace and truth to her with an invitation and also to this Pharisee who's scoffing at the whole thing. This is how Jesus faithfully engages with our sinfulness. Now, our tendency, I think, as, as people in general, but especially people in the church, Christians in the church, our tendency is to gravitate toward either grace or truth, isn't it? We, if we lose either one, though, we lose what John 1 says is the glory of Jesus, of the incarnation of his coming into this world. If we, if we let go of grace or we let go of truth as we engage sin in this world, in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love, then we lose the glory of Jesus, the reality of the gospel and the foundation of our faith. This is how Jesus responds to our sin, even our sexual sin. He engages faithfully with grace and truth in these three ways. Now, I wanna take a moment here as we wrap up and speak to the Christians in the room. Those who would raise your hand and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in, I'm there. I wanna talk to you for a minute. You were called to be imitators of Christ as 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 Christians, that's, 
That's what scripture calls us to, to imitate Jesus. That's the heart of what it means to be a disciple, a follower, is that we would grow more and more like Jesus. This is how we measure how we're doing as a church. Are are we as a people becoming more and more like Jesus? And so my question is, is if, if this is what Jesus is like, when he responds to sin in our world, that he faithfully engages our sinfulness with grace and truth, if this is what he's like, and if these three points here, if these represent what the way that he does this, the way that he engages us with grace and truth, that, that he has an incarnation that's greater than the manger, that he's, he takes the truth of sin seriously and he brings grace and truth together as an invitation, how are you doing following Jesus? In this day and age, in this, the cultural waters that we swim in, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? We are to depend on Jesus as we faithfully engage people with this grace and truth. How are you doing living out a kind of incarnation that's willing to be present even to the point of friendship with people that are far from God and may make choices that you know grieve the heart of Christ? How are you doing at taking the truth of sin seriously, especially the truth of your sin? How are you doing at bringing grace and truth together as an invitation into something more? We are to depend on Jesus as we faithfully engage people with this grace and truth. Church, how are we doing at looking like Jesus when we respond to the sinfulness of this world? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've experienced the emptiness of a me-centered sexuality in your life. Maybe you've experienced the emptiness of trying to, to, to drum up the deep meaning and purpose of your life. Maybe you've experienced oh, just, just how empty it is to live for the things of this earth, and you know there's gotta be something more, something better out there. I have an invitation for you today. No matter how difficult (laughs) it is to uh, imagine that, that your creator God has a love for you that entered your world and comes to you the word made flesh carrying both the truth of of some of your darkest moments, but also a love that is bound up in grace, the grace of your creator who is full of love and, and merciful and slow to anger. I have an invitation for you. He wants you to give him your heart so that you can receive this gift of Jesus and have God at the center and heart of your life. Jesus wants to be the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life. He wants to to turn your life into something that was glorifying yourself, to something that is glorifying your creator, that make you a part of something much bigger than you, and you can make that decision today. You can receive that gift today. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.